So we are continuing our study in the life of David. Now we're going to be looking at the life of David. We've been in this study for a while now, and we're going to find ourselves in a psalm, Psalm 10, that was written by King David. And Psalm 10 is one of the most quoted and referenced uh, psalms, actually uh, any part of the Old Testament, uh, the most quoted and referenced part of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Each of the Gospels, numerous New Testament letters, quote Psalm 110, 24 different quotes and references throughout the New Testament of Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 has historically been one of the more controversial psalms because the interpretation of this psalm is so consequential. How a person interprets this psalm is vitally important and it's powerful. And we will see later that Jesus even used the complexity of this psalm the complexity of what's being foretold to silence his critics. And so if this text is so controversial, if it's so consequential, then we need to be careful. We, we need wisdom in our reading and our seeking understanding of this psalm. So uh, let's begin by reading this psalm together and asking that the Lord would meet us by his spirit to help us to understand the words that we read not just so we would grow in understanding, but that we would grow in our trust and love and obedience to Jesus. So let us listen carefully, for this is God's word. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, you know each and every one of us in this room tonight. In fact, you know us better than we know ourselves. And yet you love us. You have set your love upon us. And nothing can separate us from that love of Christ Jesus. So we pray in this time, Spirit, you would help us to read and to understand and to respond to the truth of your word. Would you draw near to us? Would you speak to our hearts and our minds? Would you transform us by your truth? And would you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening? We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is a method in trigonometry. I bet you didn't see that coming. <laughs> There is a method in trigonometry in determining the unknown distance of a point. 
by using two known points. It's called triangulation. If you're taking notes, you might want to draw a little triangle so that later on when you're flipping through your notes, you'll say, wait, what was that sermon about? Draw a little triangle. Uh, triangulation, the basic idea is that you make a triangle with two known points. You create a baseline and what you know about those two known points help you to determine information about that unknown point. And Psalm 110 describes an unknown point. In particular, Psalm 110 is a prophecy describing an unknown Lord. King David is recording a prophetic promise that God has made concerning this unknown future Lord. Look at verse one. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. Anytime we see all caps for Lord, in scripture, it represents the personal Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. And so that line is, is translated in, in probably in your Bible, uh, the Lord, all caps, says to my Lord. And these are actually two different names. The first one, Yahweh, and the second one is Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And so another way to read it is Yahweh says to my master. The scene that David is describing is a prophetic vision. David is receiving an oracle, a prophecy from God. And in this prophecy, David is hearing Yahweh speaking to David's master. So who is David's master? David is the king of Jerusalem. No one in all the land of Israel is greater than him. David is the anointed king. And some might suggest that he's describing a future king of Israel, a future descendant of his, but how could an offspring be greater than David? I mean, especially in the Hebrew culture, a future descendant would not be seen as having greater honor than the ancestor. So now, Start, we have this unknown point, an unknown Lord that Yahweh is addressing, and David is giving ear, giving ear to this. He's beholding, listening to this divine conversation take place. The oracle can be divided into two parts. Part one, Yahweh makes a declaration in verse one, and then David will add commentary to it. And then part two, Yahweh will make a promise in verse four, and then David will add commentary following that divine promise. And you can kind of tell as you look at the passage that that first part, there is a quote. There's a line with quotation marks. And then it goes down and there's another line of quotation marks. Both of those quotes are Yahweh speaking to David's Lord. And in all, we see these two quotes from Yahweh, verse 1 and verse 4. And this makes up the divine conversation that, that David is bearing witness to. And we will see in these two statements, these two statements, two quotes from Yahweh and the commentary from David, to help discern and determine who this unknown Lord must be that Yahweh is addressing. Now, you can go ahead and write down, it's Jesus, right? <laughs> but suspension of disbelief, right? We're, 
We're going to pretend like we don't know that yet. And one of the reasons is because uh, we're going to do some theological trigonometry, okay? I'm sure that phrase has never been said before, but we're going to show our work. We're going to show our work. We're, we're going to have uh, this, this uh, solution that we're going to work through, and we're going to figure out how do we determine the answer of who this unknown Lord is. So verse 1, Yahweh says to my master, quote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh is calling to this Lord to sit at his right hand. And, and this is not only a position of ultimate honor, it's a position of ultimate power. To sit at the right hand of Yahweh is to be an extension of Yahweh's ultimate rule and his sovereign authority. The first declaration also includes a promise from Yahweh that, that Yahweh will make the enemies of this Lord into a footstool for his feet. And this imagery conveys a divine promise that all of the enemies of David's Lord will be completely subdued and totally submissive. My grandfather, he used to keep a footstool next to his chair. Uh, you all probably had, like, Grandpa had a chair, right? Like, it was his chair. You don't sit in Grandpa's chair. And so Grandpa had a chair, but uh, it wasn't one of those fancy lazy boys, one of those recliners. He had a footstool to prop his feet up on. And this has a picture of, of relaxation. And Yahweh says, I will put all of your enemies under your feet like a footstool. They will be subdued and submissive. It's a picture of rest, a picture of power, and perfect authority. That footstool would be his enemies. His enemies would be his footstool. And that's our first known point. Yahweh declares that this Lord will have ultimate power, ultimate rule, ultimate authority. This is a picture of divine kingship. So, first known point, this master of David will be a king. Look at verse 2 for the commentary that David adds after the quote from Yahweh. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. David describes a vision of this unknown Lord and his royal rule. It's a description of a king's expanding rule and reign. And in this king's reign, the people of God freely, joyfully offer themselves to his service. The reign of this king will not be one of coercion. It's not going to be a kingdom that is established through intimidation or oppression. But freely and joyfully, the people will serve this king and his rule. So, that first known point this future Lord of David's is a king, and his rule and reign are of divine declaration. God has promised to establish these things. And throughout our study of First and Second Samuel, the life of King David, we've learned about kings, about kingships, about kingdom. We've studied the inauguration of the throne of Israel. And in all that we've looked at, there's, there's not any person, not David, especially not Saul, no one has been addressed in this way. Yes, they were established and anointed as kings, but the promises made 
to this unknown Lord of David are noticeably different. It's similar to the declarations that God has made about the throne of David, but these words in Psalm 110 speak of a more extraordinary king. And that's part one, our first known point. David's Lord will be a king. Part two begins in verse four. Let's look together. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the second quote from Yahweh, the second part of this divine oracle is a promise. So the first one was a declaration declaring for this Lord to sit at his right hand. And the second one is a promise. David records that Yahweh swears an oath And because it's a divine oath, it will never change. It's an eternal promise. The Hebrew reads, Yahweh has sworn and will never repent. The oath that Yahweh has sworn to the future king is, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's our second known point. David's Lord, this unknown future king, is also a priest And those are our two known points. He's a king and he is a priest. And in this divine conversation, this prophecy that David is overhearing, Yahweh describes this priest. And he gives us a couple of important attributes about him. First, he's a priest forever. And second, he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So a couple of important notes that we should cover First, no priest is a priest forever. To be a priest of Israel, you had to be born into the right family, and that family was the tribe of Levi. To become a priest, you were consecrated and trained for this familial service. It was known as a generational role. You were a priest until you died, and within that tribe of Levi, the next generation of priests continued the work. No one was a priest forever. But Yahweh is swearing an oath, an oath that he will never repent of. And he's swearing it to this unknown Lord. You will be a priest forever. And the second detail for this forever priest is that he will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So it's probably clear what we we have to figure out next. Who is Melchizedek? I had a lengthy conversation with someone. It happened twice this week where I was talking about Melchizedek and studying this text. And in both conversations, we realized a couple of minutes in that they thought I was talking about Mephibosheth. (laughs) Classic, right? (laughs) In Genesis 13 and 14, uh, we read of Abraham. At that point, he was still Abram which is great. Changing names throughout the Bible is really helpful as you're trying to study it. But I'm gonna say Abram because that's where we are in the story. In Genesis 13 and 14, we read of Abram leading a large group of men to take back possession of uh, some of their people and possessions had been stolen by these four different kings and their armies. These invading armies came in and they stole from them. Abram, uh, his nephew Lot, is a part of this group of people who had been taken captured. And, and so at that point, Abram leads an army to go retrieve all of these possess- stolen possessions and captured people. 
And so he goes and he does that. He retrieves uh, these things. They, they, have, uh, they are successful in warring against these armies. And when Abram successfully retrieves the captured people, including his nephew Lot, the kings of the towns that were getting their, uh, receiving their stolen goods and their captured people, uh, they, they were very grateful. There's this one nearby king, though, who uh, it, it reads as though maybe he didn't have his, uh, his village pillaged by these armies. He comes out, though, in this valley, this place called the Valley of the Kings. And this king comes out, and he celebrates that these Abram and his men have been victorious. And the way that he celebrates and he honors them is by bringing out wine and bread for them to eat. And so Abram and his men, they, they eat of this food and they drink this wine. And then this king, and really at this point, we should kind of picture more of a mayor because the, these villages were not big cities. And so there's a king who's kind of a, a mayor over this town. He comes out, he, he gives uh, the, the bread and the wine to the men, and, uh, and then he blesses Abram. He, he he says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And this king, this local kind of rural, small town mayor is a king who is known as Melchizedek, the king of Salem or Salem. Uh, there are lots of places named Salem, Salem, in that area, but it is believed that with the geography, the, the place and all of that, that it might be the place that would later be called Jerusalem, Jerusalem, where David is now king. And so all these thousands of years back, there was this king of Salem named Melchizedek, and it says that the king was also a priest of the Most High God. So when he went out to honor Abram and his men, and when he made uh, this gift of the bread and the wine to these men, and when he blessed Abram, he did so in the name of Abram's God. He did it in honor of Yahweh. And so here we have this only time we've ever seen a priest king in the scriptures. This is long before the priesthood would later be established by Aaron and Moses with the uh, tribe of, of Levi. Uh, that will happen much later. And so it's quite unusual to have a priest, even more unusual to have a priest king. And yet here is this man. And so uh, Abram, uh, it was customary at that time, if you had led a successful retrieval of a raid and, and gotten possession of the, the people and those, uh, those belongings that had been stolen, that as the leader, he and his men would be allowed to keep a portion. And so they were, were returning everything to these different kings and their kingdoms. And, and Abram said, I don't want to keep any of it. He says, I don't want any of you kings, because some of these were pretty rotten kings. He said, I don't want any of you to ever be able to claim I'm the one who made Abram wealthy. He said, I don't want any of it. And he took what, what likely would have been his share and he gave it to Melchizedek. That's all we have on the life of Melchizedek. It, you know, when, when you start to think about it, like the what can we gather about this person who's so briefly mentioned and yet this 
priest king that's being described here, this unknown Lord of David that's being described in Psalm 110, he's being described as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So what, what can we learn? What, what can we do on this kind of baseline of these two known points as we're trying to understand more about David's Lord? What, what can we begin to learn here? So I'd like to highlight a, a few aspects about Melchizedek that might help us to bring into focus this unknown Lord of David. First, Melchizedek was a priest king. The role of priest king was forbidden in Israel and by the Mosaic law. Um, only Levites could be priests. There was an intentional separation between the Levites and the kings. The dual role was not possible. And in fact, if a person were to try to be a priest king, it would signal monumental changes to God's law. Saul, as you remember from a few months back when we were studying his life, uh, when Saul started, he, he couldn't wait on Samuel and he started doing a sacrifice himself. He took on the role of priest because he was impatient. That's why he lost the throne of Israel. He had tried to be a priest king and God removed him from the throne. The role of the priest king was essentially an impossibility, but there was this one man in Israel's history who served God before the law was written down, before the priesthood was established, there was this man. And the oath that Yahweh is making to this unknown Lord is that he will be in the order of, the type of, this only other priest king, Melchizedek. The second helpful thing from Melchizedek's story. In the account of Melchizedek, there's no mention of his backstory, which is kind of a rare thing in the Old Testament, right? No family lineage is mentioned, no origin story, no record of his death. And in that sense, Melchizedek is a picture of a forever priest. He represents a priest king that reigns forever. Of course, Melchizedek obviously died and stopped being a priest king at some point, but because the story never included those things, um, Melchizedek became a representation of the forever priest king. And there are a number of non-biblical writings uh, that imagine different stories of the origin of Melchizedek. Quite fun to read if you find yourself in Second Enoch in the coming days. Uh, but it, it appears that these fantastic legends about Melchizedek were pretty widely known even at, in Jesus' time, thousands of years later. So Melchizedek is an image, an illustration of the forever king who would have, the, that, that picture would have been widely understood at that time. And the third thing, the final helpful aspect of the story of Melchizedek, Melchizedek was not in the lineage of Levi, he was outside of the order of that later established Israelite priesthood. Melchizedek was not from the tribe of the Levites, and that has implications for how we understand David's Lord in Psalm 110. Because if this priest king is in the order, the line of Melchizedek, then we aren't looking for a person who is a priest from the tribe of Levi. We aren't anticipating a Levite priest who will also become king one day. All right, let's keep going. After David hears this promise of Yahweh, he adds uh, in verse five, his commentary once again. The Lord is at your right hand 
He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Even though the oracle of David just just recorded is about the unknown Lord being a priest, David again returns to this reign of the king. David's Lord will shatter kings, will execute judgment, will shatter chiefs all over the world. And in the end, he will rest and refresh himself, drinking from the streams. David again illustrates the power and the success of this future priest king. He will not simply be in Israel. He will be over the wide earth. His reign will be everywhere. And that's the end of the prophecy that David received when he heard Yahweh address this future Lord. So, what do we do now? Let's think again about these two known points of the triangle. The first point that we know David's Lord is a king. The second known point, David's Lord is a priest. And the big reveal after all of this is that the priest king is Jesus. But why does that matter? What difference does all of it make? Is this just a theological puzzle for us to put together? Have you ever spent a lot of time on a puzzle or a Lego set, and then you're done, and you've got to figure out what to do with it? Yeah. Someone could have just shouted out, it's Jesus, 20 minutes ago, and we'd all be sitting down at Chili's by now, right? One chief reason that it is so important for us to see what is happening in Psalm 110 is that in Psalm 110, we get a glimpse of God's eternal plan to rescue us and to bring us under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We get to peek into that thousands of years before it would happen. In Psalm 110, we are given an opportunity to learn more about who Jesus is as our eternal priest and forever king. And this psalm, this relatively short prophecy from David, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. As I said, you find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, you find it in Acts, you find it in Ephesians, Colossians, and a lot in Hebrews. But why? Why is it so important for us to understand The most detailed exploration of Psalm 110 occurs uh, in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, particularly in chapter 7. I believe you'll find it printed in your worship guides. In the letter to the Hebrews, we get to hear from someone else who has done the work, this theological trigonometry of working out, interpreting Psalm 110. Someone has sought to determine who this unknown Lord of David must be. And by God's grace and his spirit, they show their work for us. We get to see their work laid out in chapter 7. Not only are they helpful in explaining how they determined who this Lord of David is, but they explain the implications, the consequences of this now present king and priest. So let's look at these consequences together. Uh, Chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, 
rather than one named after the order of Aaron, that would be Levi. The author is posing a question. Why do we need another priest? There's already a priesthood in the line of Levi and Aaron. It is the line of the priest that delivered the law from Moses. If perfection had been attainable, though, and this is the question that he's posing, if perfection had been attainable through these Levite priests, the sacrifices that they were giving, why would we need a Mechizeldek priest? The author answers the question in their question, saying, it's because perfection was not attainable through the law and the sacrifices. Because perfection was not attainable through these Levite priests, through the law, through the sacrifices, another priest is needed. A greater priest is needed. There are more consequences, consequences that have to do with both the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the law. Look at verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The change being described here is that the new priest is not from the line of Levi, and that's against the law. And this new priest is also a king, which is also against the law. So for these things to happen, the law must change. This is seismic. The new priest king will come from a different line, the line of David, the line of Judah. The author explains that next. Look at verse 13. Well, I'll read 13 uh, through 16 or 17. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This, comes, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Like Melchizedek, Jesus does not come from the line of Levi. Jesus is called by a declaration and an oath of Yahweh. Yahweh declares that he will be an eternal priest for his people not on the basis of a legal requirement on the concerning bodily descent, so, so not in that family lineage. In other words, it's not because Joseph, Jesus' earthly stepdad, was a priest that now Jesus gets to be a priest. No, Yahweh has made him a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That means this tribal language and requirement for the priesthood is over. Verse 18, For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. So now we get to the question that you might have been asking since the very start. What does this have to do with me? Now I must caution that while that's a completely understandable question, what does this have to do with me? It can't be our chief question when we, we read the Bible. It can't be our guiding North Star. Some things in the scriptures don't have a quick and immediate benefit to us. 
Sometimes the benefit is just encountering the truth of God. And in that sense, the truth of God always benefits us. The truth of God calibrates our hearts and our minds to the reality of God. And the reality that we behold in Psalm 110 and here in Hebrews 7 is that Jesus has been exalted by God the Father to be our eternal priest and king. And in doing this, establishing for us an eternal priest and king, God has given us a better hope. A better hope than the sacrificial system. A better hope than just trying to obey the law as best we can. A better hope than just being a good guy. A better hope than coming from the right family. A better hope than just serving enough, doing enough, achieving enough. A better hope is found in Christ because it's only through the priest king Jesus that we are able to draw near to God. The forever priest king in the order of Melchizedek is how you draw near to God. Another way to put this is you have been justified because God has exalted and promised Jesus as your eternal priest king. By Jesus being established and exalted as the eternal priest king, this is how you have confidence and assurance of your own salvation. Not by works of the hands or the goodness of the heart, you can draw near to God because you have a better hope in Jesus. The calibrating reality that Jesus is eternally supreme as priest and king means that Jesus is not a helpful additive to your life. Jesus is not a source of inspiration or a boost in manifesting and achieving your best life. Jesus is not an add-on for what you've already got going. Jesus is the supreme priest and ultimate king of all of existence for all eternity. That's the only way that you can draw near to God and the only hope that you have for a better covenant. We need these truths about Christ as our priest king to instruct our hearts and our minds to calibrate our understanding about ourselves, about God, and about our day-to-day lives. Because there are real dangers if we confuse or neglect the way in which we are justified with God. Michael Coggan, who helps lead our care ministry, shared a quote with me recently. Uh, If you want to know my love language is long quotes from old books, send them my way. And so he loved me well in sending me this long quote that I'm about to read to you. Uh, And it was like looking in a mirror I didn't want to look at. It's a couple of paragraphs, and and in these few paragraphs, I felt my heart exposed before the Lord in new and profound ways. And so I want to share it with you. It's a a book by Richard Loveless. It was written in 1979 uh, called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And so let let me read this to you. He begins, quote, The ultimate concern of most church members is not the worship and service of Christ, in evangelistic mission and compassion, but rather survival and success in their lives. Church members who have been conditioned all their lives to devote themselves to building their own kingdoms, whose flesh naturally gravitates in that direction anyway, and find it hard to invest much energy in the kingdom of God. They go to church once or twice a week and punch the clock, so to speak, fulfilling their church obligation by sitting passively and listening critically or approvingly to the pastor's teaching. 
Church members may repeat the catchwords of the theology of grace, but many have little deep awareness that they and other Christians are accepted in the beloved. Since their understanding of justification is marginal or unreal, anchored not in Christ, but to some conversion experience in the past or some imagined present state of goodness in their life, they know little of the dynamic of justification. Their understanding of sin focuses upon behavioral externals, which they can eliminate from their lives by little willpower and ignore the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness, and hostility beneath the surface. Thus, their Phariseeism defends them, both against full involvement in the church's mission and against full subjection of their inner lives to the authority of Christ. And this is the part that got me good. Their religious lives, however, do not satisfy their consciences at the deepest level. And so there is a powerful underlying insecurity in their life, end quote. This underlying insecurity, this feeling of being unsure about the depths of God's love for us. Unsure in the depths of our hearts what God thinks about us. This is connected to our knowing and believing that we are truly and eternally justified by Jesus, our priest, king. David was given a vision of the priest king to come, a vision of Yahweh establishing and exalting the Lord Jesus forever. Jesus was not established and exalted to give us a boost to assist us in reaching our temporary goals and dreams. Jesus has drawn near to God forever, and in doing so, drawn us near to God forever. He is the great high priest who offered himself as the perfect and final sacrifice. He's the priest who sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is the king who reigns over the eternal kingdom, and we receive his sacrifice and receive his kingdom in faith. That is our justification, and that is the truth that eradicates our insecurity before our holy God. That's how we come to the throne with confidence, boldly to his throne of mercy. Because we who believe, who have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son through the sacrifice of the great high priest himself, his own body. This is how we were saved to the uttermost, our eternal priest and king. He is how we draw near to God forever. Let's pray. O God, by your Spirit, would you continue to draw near to us that we might draw near to you. We pray that as we reflect on your scriptures, as we behold just the manifold way that you have set your heart on us in in such a way that you, for generation after generation after generation, you have been in pursuit of us and establishing your priest, king, and his kingdom forever. God, would you give us a glimpse of that? As you gave David this glimpse of hearing your grand plan for eternity, would you give us a glimpse as well? And may we treasure 
and love and trust and obey our priest king Jesus all the days of our lives. We pray these things in his name. Amen.